This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. If you looked at the weight of all living vertebrates, only about 1% of that is wild. Of all of the birds, 60% are domestic chickens. It's unusual we have a book on the Books podcast that comes already garlanded with honours, but Otherlands by Dr Thomas Halliday is about to be the Waterstones non-fiction book of the year, and it's also Stanford's book of the month. And <laughs> I have to say as well, it's an eye-opening and fascinating read. Thomas, thank you for joining us on Books podcast. Thank you for having me. We're going to need to get a sense of what Otherlands is about. Um, but before, actually before we do... Uh, there's, there's actually a decent story about its publication, isn't it? The road to publication. Sure. Well, I mean, th- th- this was something which I had been, uh, an idea which had been going around my head for only really a couple of months before I put pen to paper back in 2018. And um, in the end, submitted it uh, as a proposal, just a, a draft chapter to um, a potential agent. And um, about a week later, that agent called me up and said that she wanted to represent me. That's Catherine Clark. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I went to meet her and we tweaked my proposal, sent it out to publishers and within two months of uh, having submitted it to the agency, yeah, we had, um, I think, a seven-way auction um, for <laughs> a it. A feeding frenzy is what you had, isn't it? yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I, you, uh, that has to be a very unusual story. Uh, I, I, yeah, I believe it is. I mean, it's... Um, I, I understand from Catherine that taking authors from the slush pile, as they call it, is <laughs> is an unusual so, but I mean, for for me, it's all been just a, a world which I didn't know at all to begin with. And so I don't really have anything else to compare it with. And it's been, I've just been letting things happen ever since. <laughs> okay. Well, what was that idea then that you pitched to them? Well, the idea really is uh, to take uh, Earth history in a series of uh, snapshots, really. So um, the world has changed hugely in the last half a billion years. And... Um, when we uh, look Tidy at the past, half billion years. Yeah, and when we when we look at the past, we tend to think of only a very few of those time periods. We try to sort of tend to lump dinosaur time together, even though that was you know 150 million years. One of the things I didn't know that Stegosauruses and Tyrannosauruses would never have met because they were separated by oh, but, yeah, by, by about 70 million years. Yeah. Yes, there's there's more time between Stegosaurus and Tyrannosaurus than between us and Tyrannosaurus. So. All of these plate, long time periods tend to be lumped together. And across all of these time periods, we would have had specific locations that had characteristics that, um, you know, the landscapes that are around today, we've got deserts, we've got tundras, we've got, um, we've got rainforests and coral reefs, and all of these are different environments that we can visit in the world today. And, so, and the worlds of the past were just as heterogeneous. They weren't just less asphalt. <laughs> less asphalt, absolutely. And... And, you know, but we're going back before grass into the Mesozoic. Grass, and- do you know, that was the first thing that made me go, ooh, ooh, ooh. So tell me about grass. I, it had not occurred to me that there was a time before grass, and yet it's really quite recent. Sure. I mean, we have this sort of holistic idea of, of what an environment means, and the plants tend to sort of fade into the background. But, of course, they've evolved too. Um, and grass is one of these sort of hardy species which is uh, adapted to our current relatively cold earth. Um, grass evolved probably about 70 million years ago in South America, where they were relatively minor parts of the ecosystem. So, you know, they overlapped with dinosaurs that little bit, um, but didn't really become at all dominant until uh, much later into the uh, in, in the Oligocene, which is about a sort of 40 million 
year gap. Um, and they, from then they sort of spread out all over the world as the Earth began to get cooler, um, with you know Antarctica becoming covered in ice and you know, changes in atmospheric and ocean uh, currents began to sort of transform the Earth's climate from greenhouse to ice house. Um, but today, grasslands are the the most widespread ecosystem on the planet, uh, and in fact, the the largest single contiguous ecosystem that has ever existed on the planet that you know that we know of is the Mammoth Steppe from twenty thousand years ago, um, which stretched from you know all the way from Portugal across Eurasia all the way to Alaska. So you know, grasslands can be huge and are absolutely dominant today, but they haven't always been there. So you start off with. Uh, recent well, <laughs> recent ice ages and things. So mm -hmm. you start off in the sort of recent large uh, period and work backwards. The first the first chapter that we meet is is sort of the you know the since the dinosaurs and then you work backwards <laughs> through your half billion years. Why backwards? I wanted to ease people in to some extent. So if if you if, if I were to throw the reader in half a billion years ago to where there are organisms that are just unlike anything that. Is around today. There's nothing familiar to latch onto. Um, I think I thought it would be quite a disorienting experience, right? It's I, I've described this before as kind of like a travel book, in, yes, sort of yes, in the way right. that I've approached it. Um, and so, you know, we start at home and we um, head backwards. Well, very um, explicitly a travel book, because what you've done is you've you've sort of inserted uh, the reader. Uh, as a, a point of view, even though clearly there was nobody observing way back then, and uh, you, we get so far back that there, are, you know, there isn't even people, there isn't sight or or, or hearing sure. going on. But in fact, you, 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 the chapters all open is sort of dramatic present. You know, it was a fresh spring day in the early Cretaceous or something right. like that. But essentially, your 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 objective is to put you and me there, standing there watching these things happening. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you can. I think you can interpret it as you being there. You could interpret it as a, you know, a fixed camera, almost a kind of cinematic approach, I suppose. Um, but yes, it's meant to be um, immersive. So not just, um, the, the, you know, we, we we think of fossils as being those bones that we have mounted in iron and in, in the museum, but really they represent living organisms and an ecosystem that these organisms inhabited is made up of. Uh, also the weather and uh, the sort of local chemistry of the water and the, and the soil, um, plants, animals, fungi, everything comes together to create a whole place. And I think uh, you don't tend to get a sense of what it would have been like in the past just from looking at the, the bones themselves. You're very excited by ecosystems. You go back to that again and again to say this is all working together. It's all a, a system. Sure. I mean, uh, this book is, I mean, as uh, Essentially, what I feel like I was trying to do is to convey ecology um, through paleontology. So um, uh, we talk about all sorts of things. So in, in the in the Cambrian chapter, which is just a little over half a billion years ago, um, that chapter is all about food webs and how the, the origins of predation and affected the evolution of animals. Uh, and th these are rules that, you know, we can see the same basic structures in the food webs of the Cambrian as we can see in the food webs of today. So these are, as far as biology has laws, these are sort of patterns, I suppose, that emerge again and again over Earth history. I mean, obviously, scientists have um, different focuses, and I, I'm just, I guess, particularly interested in the, the, the large-scale trends. So whether we're looking in one particular time period at what's going on across an ecosystem 
or, uh, or, or the sort of macroevolutionary, the big changes, the trends, evolutionary trends that happen along a lineage. Um, but while changes along a lineage, there's quite a lot of books out there that you can go and look at that charts, you know, the, the, the history of particularly dinosaurs or ice age creatures. Or, no hominids. Um, you know, or, yeah. No hominids, exactly. Um, there's, not that, there's not really anything out there particularly that looks at a site in depth with all of its sort of aspects there. I, I have to uh, confess that I, I was swamped with uh, delight and, and, and the, the, the amazing amount of uh, fascinating and remarkable things, a lot of which I did not know, inevitably. Um, I'm inclined to cherry pick a bit. Can I, can I ask you to do a, a sort of a, a, a set piece? You tell us about the Mediterranean and mm -hmm. what happened to it in terms of the continents moving together and blocking up the uh, the Straits of Gibraltar. Can can you, uh, you know, sketch that out for us? Because it simply hadn't occurred to me that that sort of thing used to happen. Sure. Um, well, the uh, you know the Earth is made up of a set of tectonic plates that are all shifting around um, over time. And um, it happened that uh, about four million years ago, the uh, Straits of Gibraltar that separates Africa and Eurasia at one end closed. And it was already relatively closed at the other end with Afro Arabia touching Asia. And so the Mediterranean Sea, which was still relatively young at that time, was then cut off from the Atlantic Ocean. Now, it happens that not many rivers flow into the Mediterranean, and this was true then as well. So the rate of water evaporating from the Mediterranean is faster than rain and rivers can replenish it. And what that meant is that with the straits closed, the water went down and down and down until essentially we had perhaps a few little very, very concentrated salt lakes at the bottom of a several kilometre so deep It basically hole. dried out? Essentially dried out, How long yes. did that take? Uh, that took, uh, oh, it's about a thousand years, isn't it? Golly. Yeah. Um, I think it's about a thousand years. I mean, timings are a bit controversial. And actually, probably the timing that is a bit more controversial is the question of how long it took to refill. Well, that's that's the bit that got my imagination going, because you, you do a marvellous piece um, uh, describing that, because at some point it clearly did refill, because there it is now. Yeah, absolutely. There was um, what's known as a strike-slip earthquake, um, which is when the two blades sort of jar against each other sideways. Uh, and this uh, lowered uh, what is now the Straits of Gibraltar and um, essentially opened a sluice. Um, so we had this shallow, weir-like structure of water filling, flowing in from the Atlantic um, into the western half of the Mediterranean Sea, which had then filled up. Now, there's a there's a big ridge in the middle of the Mediterranean basin of which Italy is a part and Malta and Tunisia. So across there, it's known as the sort of this, uh, Malta Sicilian sill. That's the word. <laughs> um, and uh, so once the water had reached up to that and the Western Mediterranean was full, it then poured over into the Eastern Mediterranean. And we have this wonderful evidence from uh, just outside Syracuse um, in, in Sicily where um, under the sea there are these deep gouges, these canyons, 
uh, which sort of showed that there had been this enormous waterfall coming down off the um, Sicilian sill. And I learned from your book the, the biggest waterfall that the, the big, world has ever seen. The biggest waterfall the world has ever seen. This, and, and it's not just biggest in terms of height, so it's something like twice the height of the Angel Falls um, in Venezuela, um, which is the biggest waterfall around today, uh, but also much wider than Niagara as well. So it's not just, you know, it, it's big in all senses. This was an absolutely vast uh, scene and it just of all of the scenes that if you know if you had a time machine where would you go is a question that's, that's that I one. get asked quite a lot and and that that is number one on my absolute sort of and I could itinerary. see it and uh, you, when I was reading your book I, I watched it happen and I went wow I'm asking about that um, there are other uh, all sorts of uh, details and facts you, you talk about islands a lot because islands ha have a big effect effect um, you say, suggest that. Islands promote uh, gigantism and dwarfism. Can you tell us about that? Uh well, this is a pattern that was first identified in paleontology. It was first suggested on dinosaurs mm -hmm. uh, by um, a, a wonderful uh, character called um, Baron Notcher um, from Hungary, who um, found this fossil site with sauropods. So sauropods are the dinosaurs with long necks and long tails, um, like Diplodocus and so on. But at Hatzeg in what is now Romania, uh, he found very small sauropods and uh, suggested that Hatzeg had been an island and that uh, they had evolved to become smaller on, on the island. Uh, and then this pattern was later seen with Dorothea Bates, found fossil dwarf elephants on Mediterranean islands from, you know, relatively recently. And yeah, we have these uh, wonderful fossils. Of, so at Gargano, which is the, the, the main focus of that Mediterranean chapter, uh, there are uh, giant flightless barn owls um, and giant flightless geese and uh, enormous eagles, but also tiny deer and you know, enormous shrews and <laughs> all sorts of uh, interesting creatures. Let me ask you, as I say, I'm going to cherry pick. Um, all the monkeys in South America, you tell us, derive from a tiny initial population. Um, and all the howler monkeys, spider monkeys, tamarins, mm -hmm. marmosets... Or, which are very, very different. Where did that population come from? Well, uh, that, that population is descended from uh, an ancestral population uh, that came from Africa. Um, and for a long time, it was thought that uh, they sort of diverged when the continents diverged. But we now know that happened far too long ago for it to be relevant for monkeys. And uh, so the prevailing idea is that they rafted across uh, the Atlantic. We know that... Um, and big rivers like the Congo, if you get a storm, quite frequently big chunks of uh, forest will be detached from the bank and hold together because of the roots of the trees and, and actually be a relatively coherent structure. These float down the rivers out into the sea. Um, and back then, the Atlantic was only half the width that it is now. So, so a fair chunk it's, of a, sea. It's, it's, a, it's a long way. It would have been. It would have had to have been, I think, at least a couple of weeks of travel, even if they're going in the, the right direction the whole time. Um, but this seems to have happened a surprising amount. I mean, this, these, <laughs> these long-distance dispersals are... Um, it happened at least twice with monkeys. There's been a, a, a relatively recent discovery of uh, a second uh, monkey um, population that arrived there a little bit later than, than the, uh, the ones we now know as, quote, New World monkeys. Um, uh, but also rodents, all the South American rodents, guinea pigs, capybaras, and so on. These are, these are African rodents ancestrally that rafted across. Uh, in the Americas, we have even freshwater fish and amphibians that are uh, more closely related to those in Africa. Um, but it's, it, that's some of the most um, 
mind-bending things that we kind of think must have happened. In the spirit of still cherry-picking, I'm, I'm going to do one more. Um, and uh, Because you, you deal with, uh, especially as we go further back in time, remarkable and, uh, and un almost unbelievable creatures. Uh, you say uh, in your book, uh, Ask any vertebrate paleontologist, which geological period includes the weirdest beats, beasts? And they will say Triassic. Well, I'm asking. <laughs> Tell me about so why is the Triassic period the, uh, the, the uh, place to go for weird beasts? So the Triassic comes after the biggest mass extinction of all, the end Permian mass extinction, which wiped out, according to some estimates, 95% of life on this planet. Um, and... Uh, Previous, prior to the the end Permian mass extinction, that you know the world was full of uh, diverse uh, animals. The um, sort of dominant vertebrates on land were synapsids, though, so things that are actually more closely related to us than to the um, sort of other reptile groups. Um, but in the aftermath of the um, end Permian mass extinction, the group, just as mammals take over in in the in the Paleocene after the end Cretaceous, you get the archosaurs really rising to uh, dominate. Uh, ecological relationships uh, in the Triassic. And so um, some of these are the bizarre crocodile relations. So you have, uh, and the earliest crocodiles are um, sort of small fox-sized things that, that were walking quite upright and were probably behaving in similar ways to some foxes. I mean, we know of, there's an animal called um, Pacasuchus, which I think is late Triassic, although I might have to check that, which is um, sort of nicknamed the cat crocodile because it was a terrestrial predator that hunted probably in a similar way that cats do today. And with the legs um, underneath the body rather than on sure. the side. Yeah, absolutely. Because the um, characteristic of crocodiles, as far as we know, is, or is it as far as we know from today, is... is sure, I mean, all the, all the, all the crocodiles and their, their relatives today are um, occupying essentially the same ecological niche, right? They are, they are semi-aquatic predators that... Um, that are eating mostly fish and large animals. <laughs> um, whereas in the past, there were herbivorous crocodiles um, like uh, Simosuchus, which is this sort of very strange um, squ squat-nosed uh, creature from, from Madagascar, the late Cretaceous of Madagascar. Um, <laughs> herbivorous crocodile. Yeah, yeah. Fat. <laughs> um, but uh, in the Triassic, you had not only archosaurs, but also the beginnings of... Um, uh, the the line that would lead to pterosaurs as well. So the the the, the flying the first flying archosaurs because of course dinosaurs got there eventually too, um, and the earliest dinosaurs and as well as creatures which just had a, a short uh, burst of uh, bizarre ecologies and then disappear for good, which is why the Triassic ends up being so weird. So Charavipteryx is probably one of, is one of my favourite. Um, species from the from the book and it um, is known only from one site uh, which is uh, called Madigan in uh, Kyrgyzstan. Um, so it was a gliding uh, lizard-like creature. Um, so if you imagine a gecko with extremely long legs um, you are almost there because between those legs and the tail there was a, a, a membrane like stretched paragliding wing structure. Um, with also one between its forelimbs and its and its neck, so it's it's out there, um, sort of you know jumping from tree to tree and using these two this sort of double delta wing structure to to glide probably very efficiently through the air. The the, the the models, I mean, some people have made models to try and fly these things to see how well they glide, and they're not bad. Um, and there's a possible relative as well of that called uh, Ozimek from, from, from Poland. Um, and these are the only two specimens that we have of this sort of bizarre group, which was possibly quite widespread if we know it from 
you know, Kyrgyz, what is now Kyrgyzstan and Poland are quite because of course all, all, all fossils are a chance thing, aren't they? Then yes, it's not like and 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 uh, certainly uh, Kyrgyzstan, the site in Kyrgyzstan is really really far inland for uh, a fossil site. Mostly fossils are deposited. Well, fossils are generally deposited where there's water. So that usually means shallow seas. It can mean deep sea. That's a little rarer. Um, uh, or with occasionally with lakes. But our terrestrial fossil record, the record of those things that lived on land, is so sparse compared with, you know, the endless record of ammonite shells and, you know, it, and yeah, everything that lives in, in the ocean uh, is, uh, you know, the, the data is just so much better. Um, but Sharaviptrix is one of these um, creatures from a very rare terrestrial site from the Triassic. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like a window into what we could have. You know, mountains are erosional environments, right? So we, we will never find a mountain dinosaur unless it happens to have been preserved in a, in a, in a mountain lake somewhere that you know these are these are very very rare events it's a huge bias in 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 what we have preserved of the stories that we can tell you can't help drawing some conclusions about the present uh, catastrophe um because i mean people have said that the, the current era is like the the sixth mass extinction mm -hmm. and and we can take personal credit for that one um so uh, in fact in the book you say the planet looks like a post-extinction world right now um, in in some senses, yes. So uh, wh when I say that, I'm talking about uh, the the diversity of creatures that's around. So the the um, if we looked at the weight of all uh, living uh, vertebrates, I think is the um, is the group that's yeah. If you look at the weight of all the living vertebrates, um, then only about one percent of that is wild animals today. Um, all the rest are either humans or domestic. Animals. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And um, compare that with, you know, 20,000 years ago when there were humans, um, but no domesticated animals, or compare that with, you know, 6,000 years ago when we began to have domesticated animals. Um, even then, the, the number of wild animals, of course, the mass outweighed us hugely. And this is partly because we've, you know, just um, tended to kill a lot of those larger animals when, you know, Populations of whales have crashed over the last 200 years, um, and but are building back up again thanks to conservation efforts. Um, but yes, uh, the the particular thing that makes it look like a post-extinction world is that um, of all of the birds, 60% um, of them is it are domestic chickens. Of all um, the birds all, in all, the world, of all birds in the world, 60% of chickens. Yes. Uh, that's a mind-blowing fact. It's exactly the sort of thing that I kept <laughs> writing down as I was reading the book. And um, as I say, I'm, I, I'm swamped with um, stuff like... I, I'm going to have to read it again so that I can trot this out at dinner parties because the, the, the material in here is, is explosive and, uh, and absolutely ravishing. Thomas, thank you very much. Thank you. The book is... Otherland by Dr. Thomas Halliday. Uh, it's published by Alan Lane at £20. And as you can tell, <laughs> I found it riveting. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>